Great. So thank you everyone for being here. My name is Duration. I'm the Oahu Chapter Coordinator for Surfrider Foundation. Um, we're really excited to be having our first webinar with Dr. Chip Fletcher, who is one of the top climate scientists in Hawaii um, and just has these amazing presentations that have the latest science um, to both educate and inspire. We just as a little update, we are not able to get the Facebook Live up. So um, for those who were trying to join that, maybe um, we can have that up um, on Facebook and YouTube after the event. So yeah, Surfrider Oahu, for those of you who aren't familiar, you know, we're probably best known for our work in beach cleanups, plastic pollution, um, and things like that. But we've been focusing more and more of our efforts on um, protecting our beaches, how to have, um, how to work on coastal preservation, uh, trying to find alternatives to seawalls and shoreline hardening. And so we've been working with Dr. Chip Fletcher a lot more recently. So we're really excited that he's here to share his presentation. Um, I'd love if you all participate in the chat, please feel free to add questions, comments, um, and I'll make sure to update Dr. Fletcher um, as those things come in, and we'll also have time at the end for some of that as well. So without further ado, Chip, I'd love for you to introduce a little bit of yourself and go right into your presentation. You're on mute, you're muted. How's that, can you hear me? Yes. Good, okay, thanks very much. Um, so I am a um, associate dean at the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at uh, UH Manoa. I have an uh, amazing research group of undergraduate, graduate students, and um, researchers. Um, we've been studying shoreline processes of various types, beaches, uh, looking at sea level rise, uh, past, okay. present, and future. Hey, Chip, sorry to interrupt the audio. There's a lot of wind um, or something going on. I don't know if there's a way for you to headphones or something, but there's a lot of. How's that? Much better, yes. Okay, yeah. That would be the fan I have right next to me. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, anyway, I'm really happy to. Uh, number one, be here this evening, and number two, to have um, mutually discovered uh, Surfrider. They discovered me and I discovered them, and we're working together with Common Cause. It's very exciting. Uh, this rotating globe I love because it clearly illustrates something very important. So uh, this uh, shows temperature change in the form of topography. And it clearly illustrates that continents are warming faster than oceans. And this is one, uh, one of many, many reasons why being in Hawaii is a very good place to be, in my opinion, as we move into a uh, warmer future. So the uh, warming in the Arctic, you can see Arctic amplification is um, a little more than twice the average rate of warming um, worldwide. Continents have already reached uh, about two degrees Celsius on average and during the summertime we watch especially continents in the northern hemisphere hit four degrees Celsius for the season and oceans 
uh, have warmed less than one degree Celsius. And so the, the total average of warming is 1.2 degrees Celsius. And 1.5 degrees Celsius is uh, the first of two United Nations targets for uh, stopping warming. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So we monitor the ocean surface with a series of satellite missions, um, partnering with the European Union Space Agency and of course NASA. These uh, satellites use a technology known as satellite altimetry, uh, which maps the ocean surface every 10 days. And over the almost 25 years of this uh, record, we are seeing a very clear signal of sea level rise. Since 1993, uh, the rate of global sea level rise has been about one foot per century. Based on tide gauges, which are very sparsely distributed around the globe, in the 20th century, uh, the rate of rise averaged about half a foot per century. So uh, it looks like we have doubled during the altimetry era. And the, alt the altimetry data is tied to the tide gauge data so that um, they're normalized together. But if you look at just the last decade, uh, the rate of global sea level rise uh, is one and a half feet per century. So this is an acceleration of sea level rise. And in fact, Steve Miram um, at University of Colorado Boulder uh, published a paper in 2018 um, looking at the satellite altimetry data, adjusting it for volcanic cooling and El Nino Southern Oscillation, uh, and uh, exposed an acceleration to the curve, which leads to two feet of sea level rise by the end of the century, 65 centimeters. So today's sea level rise does not represent today's warming or today's melting of the ice sheets. There's a lag. And uh, the first lag exists in, let's say you turn on your car, CO2 comes out of the tailpipe. It's an average of 10 years before that CO2 does any warming. And it can be as much as 30 years. In fact, it can be over a century for smaller percentages of that greenhouse gas. So the warming that we're seeing today, on average, uh, was caused a decade ago. And then you have a lag of melting the ice sheets. You know, if you take a big block of ice and put it in the middle of the room, it doesn't melt instantaneously. It takes time. And the larger the block of ice, the longer it takes to melt. And that's what's going on with the world's melting glaciers and ice sheets is um, they represent past warming, and their melting is an attempt to come into equilibrium with the new temperature of the atmosphere, and they're constantly out of equilibrium trying to catch up because warming uh, continues to um, develop, continues to accelerate. So this acceleration of global sea level rise to two feet by the end of the century is almost certainly going to increase uh, and take us to higher levels by the end of the century. We have 
another satellite mission called the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. Uh, we're in our second uh, version of this. A new set of GRACE satellites called Follow-On um, are in orbit now. These map gravity. And so every time they pass over the Greenland ice sheet, as it melts, the gravity field changes, it goes down, and these satellites detect that. Same with every other body of ice on the planet. And the same with other areas that are changing rapidly, such as groundwater withdrawal. So these satellites are telling us a lot about um, freshwater resources in addition they're letting us know uh, that the two ice sheets of the world left over from the last ice age, Greenland and Antarctica, are in a state of um, consistent accelerating melting. So this is Greenland. You can see that the melting has started at the coastal zone and it's moving its way up to the high altitude plateau. Um, the loss of mass uh, from Greenland is about 280 billion tons per year. Um, that's largely in the form of water or in the form of calving, which turns to water, calving of ice, which uh, turns to water. The rate of melting on Greenland has quadrupled over the past decade. And um, research came out earlier this summer telling us that snowfall that normally replenishes Greenland's glaciers each year can no longer keep up with the pace of melting. So um, this is interpreted as Greenland having passed the point of no return, um, past a tipping point where it is now irreversibly melting. And Greenland and Antarctica together are melting six times faster uh, than 20 years ago. And in fact, ice loss from Greenland and Antarctica is tracking the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change worst case cl uh, climate warming scenario. And sea level rise uh, that it is these two ice sheets are on track to produce could leave 400 million people exposed to coastal flooding each year by the end of the century. Again, this does not represent modern day uh, warming or melting, it represents a temporal lag, a time lag, and we're already seeing uh, these sorts of very dramatic effects. The entirety of the Antarctic ice sheet is in deficit. Yes, there are areas in blue which are still accumulating snow, but overall it's losing ice at about half the rate that Greenland is. And a very special area in extremely dark red there is West Antarctica. There are a series of individual ice sheets that um, are outlet glaciers for West Antarctica. And especially the Pine Island Glacier and the Thwaites Glacier have now been deemed to be irreversibly declining as well. In fact, that research was published in 2014. And more recently, this past summer, about a month ago, uh, there was research that came out which looked at uh, these two glaciers, specifically Pine Island and Thwaites. Um, there are floating ice shelves uh, located here and here that act as uh, stoppers to the main bodies of ice, which are 
uh, landward. These floating ice shelves are grounded uh, on the seafloor and they're also um, stuck on the walls of the embayments. There is uh, intense shear holding these floating ice shelves in place. Well, with continued sea level rise, and also with what we've observed as hundreds of meters of melting on the underside uh, of these ice shelves, we are very fearful that they will unpin from uh, the seafloor. And this research tells us uh, that they are experiencing um, release from the sides of the embayments, which is holding them. The natural buffer system preventing these two glaciers from flowing rapidly is breaking down. Uh, the ice shelves are showing new damage areas. And these are interpreted as the first signs of structural weakening and precondition these ice shelves for disintegration. So very bad news coming out of both of the world's ice sheets. Uh, we also see very dramatic melting in every one of the world's mountain glacier systems, the alpine glacier systems. Uh, you can see just a sampling of them here. Um, they're all in a state of decline. And altogether, uh, mountain glaciers and ice caps and basically the rest of the ice besides Greenland and Antarctica uh, are in this very strong state of decline, 281 million tons per year more than Antarctica. So in addition to melting ice as a cause of sea level rise, we also have the absorption of heat by the world's oceans. And when things warm, uh, warm up, they tend to expand. And so we get this thermal expansion of the ocean. Um, it represents very roughly about one third of sea level rise. And the rate of uh, uh, thermal expansion, the rate of heat absorption by the ocean is accelerating. And in uh, 2019, last year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, gave us our most recent model projections of future sea level rise. They uh, model sea level rise based on greenhouse gas emission scenarios. And for a low scenario of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, which is called RCP 2.6, and we are nowhere near that. Uh, and every economist or every economic projection indicates that we are not going to uh, be at that very low level of emissions uh, until the second half of the century, if if you know if we uh, if we so wish as a global community. But at a scenario of low emissions. Uh, the models indicate one to two feet of global sea level rise by the end of the century. And under a high scenario of emissions, uh, two to 3.6 feet by the end of the century. Now, this is called RCP 8.5. And in fact, that is worse than we are currently doing as a global community. The global community is emitting fewer greenhouse gases now than this scenario. We're on uh, the, the order of another scenario car called RCP 6.0. So based on these models, 
or someplace in between uh, these two estimates and a little bit closer to the high end. By uh, two centuries from now, by 2300, the low emission scenarios uh, suggest two to three and a half feet of sea level rise by 2300. And the high emission scenarios uh, as much as over 17 feet of sea level rise by 2300. The important point here is that while we so often talk about the amount of sea level rise at the end of this century, the fact is sea level rise is going to continue beyond this century and the one after that and the one after that. In fact, uh, a large body of research indicates that we're going to see over a thousand years of continued sea level rise. Even if we were to stop our greenhouse gas emissions, which hopefully we will. And these models do not consider rapid ice sheet disintegration in their projections because we don't understand um, the physics of rapid disintegration. We don't know what is a realistic simulation of rapid disintegration and what isn't. Keep in mind that research from earlier uh, this summer that the ice shelves are showing new damage areas that are the first signs of structural weakening and precondition these ice shelves for disintegration. This whole process uh, indicating that we um, we may be seeing signals of very rapid uh, disintegration of the ice sheets is not considered uh, in the models. All right, so where are we? Observations tell us that Antarctica and Greenland ice sheets are melting six times faster than the 1990s. Uh, the West Antarctic ice streams, especially Pine Island and Thwaites are irreversibly melting. The Greenland ice sheet is also irreversibly melting. Antarctic melting alone has tripled in the past five years. Uh, it could raise global mean sea level up to three meters uh, by the um, third century, by 2300. And um, modeling shows that we're going to see this continue for thousands of years. Sea level rise is currently accelerating and sea level rise is tracking the worst case scenario of greenhouse gas emissions, even though our actual emissions uh, are not that bad. Our models lack capacity to simulate ice sheets um, and the modeling indicates uh, on the order of one foot of sea, global mean sea level rise by mid-century and anywhere from one to four feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. And these numbers are from NOAA. And we know global mean sea level rise will continue past this century. The key thing to remember is the latest research that buttressing areas of these two ice shelves uh, are showing signs of disintegration. Just within the Pine Island and Thwaites ice streams or glaciers, they alone hold four feet of global sea level rise. Several years ago, in recognition of the reality of sea level rise and that um, it 
had already become an extremely damaging process along the Hawaiian shorelines and globally. Uh, the State of Hawaii Climate Change Commission, under the guidance of the Office of Planning and the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources, uh, issued a report which came out in December of 2017, the Hawaii Sea Level Rise Vulnerability and Adaptation Report. This report contained modeling of um, impacts of sea level rise in Hawaii of various types at different increments of sea level rise during this century. One of the modeling, uh, one of the impacts modeled was seasonal wave runup. I'm talking to the surf rider uh, organization. You know which direction to take your boards in the summer versus the winter time. We get seasonal swell on different sides of the islands. We modeled uh, the annual significant wave height from buoys uh, around the islands and on the south shore uh, we modeled the uh, seasonal high wave and this depicts uh, the community of Eva Beach with a sea level rise of two feet every summer we see dozens of homes flooded by um, the uh, typical swell event. At three feet of sea level rise we cross what I refer to as sort of a, so a social tipping point and we see this in lots of different types of impacts related to sea level rise not only around Hawaii, uh, but this transition from two, two and a half feet up to three or a little over three feet of sea level rise, suddenly a whole lot of processes on the ocean surface gain access to the flat coastal plain uh, where we have invested our assets and where we live. So this is Eva Beach every summer getting flooded by waves and um, it really, brings to question uh, the continued existence towards the end of this century of not only this coastal community, but, but others in Hawaii. We also modeled uh, coastal erosion, and this red line shows the 80% probability of erosion. Uh, lands located makai of the line have an 80 percent probability of eroding at 3.2 feet of sea level rise and also shown here in blue is the seasonal wave run up in this case we're up on the north shore uh, looking at the um, significant wave height the annual significant wave height for uh, the winter time and in bright blue you see um, segments of highway uh, that are threatened by the sea level rise impacts, either by regular flooding or by undermining by erosion. And this modeling was done for the, entire, the entirety of Kauai, Oahu, and Maui. So one of the recommendations of that report was, let's take all the, these different types of impacts, erosion, and, um, seasonal high waves, uh, and then just what's known as passive flooding, superimpose them and create a new planning area, a planning district called the uh, sea level rise exposure area. And that's what's shown here in dark purple. 
We also have done additional research, and this is the dissertation research of Dr. Shelley Habel, uh, who is a Sea Grant uh, faculty member at the university and who works at um, the uh, Department of Land and Natural Resources Office of um, Conservation and Coastal Lands. And what you see here is the impact to Western Waikiki, uh, Mo'ili'ili, and Kaka'ako under three feet of sea level rise at high tide. Uh, the greens represent where storm drains are backflowing onto streets. The pink dots are individual storm drains that uh, are either backflowing or um, are no longer functional because they have filled up with salt water, with seawater. Uh, the blue is um, marine water, salt water that has simply flowed over the shoreline and down certain streets. And the red lines are segments of road where the flooding is deeper than six inches, which is a transportation engineering standard uh, that will stop small cars when they drive through um, a puddle uh, or a standing body of water that's six inches or deeper. There's a standing wave that develops in front of a small car which, which is capable of stalling the car. And a body of water in a stalled car uh, on a roadway uh, is considered criteria for shutting down that roadway uh, for continued transportation. This is four feet of sea level rise. And as I'm going to show you, this is actually the more likely scenario by the end of this century. And you can see that basically at high tide, at the highest tide of the day, there's no getting into or out of Waikiki. Um, the drainage of the entire region is unfunctional. And um, miles and miles of roadway are impassable. But permanent inundation by sea level rise is not the only way that sea level rise impacts our communities. You're all very familiar with the uh, extreme high tide or king tide phenomenon, which we are seeing in Hawaii. In fact, these extreme tides arrive decades before the permanent inundation. And we're already seeing them accelerate in frequency and magnitude. They've already started and they are the first sentinels or signals that sea level rise uh, has entered our community, entered our lives and is growing in um, impact. So the city and county of Honolulu also has a climate change commission and that commission has written and published a number of guidances. You can see them listed here. Uh, one of the first was sea level rise guidance. And this was published in uh, 2018. And the guidance is uh, for all the agencies of the city and county of Honolulu to plan for 3.2 feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. Uh, and for projects with low tolerance for risk, that is, projects where you can't afford uh, any flooding, plan for six feet of sea level rise, and um, plan for king tides by mid-century, in fact, before mid-century, 
in the same area uh, that will ultimately be permanently flooded by 3.2 feet, the sea level rise exposure area. And the Climate Change Commission operates with uh, the Office of Climate Change Sustainability and Resiliency at the City and County of Honolulu. At the same time that that state report was issued, uh, the Pacific Islands Ocean Observing System at the University of Hawaii uh, mounted a internet map server. And you can see the wave inundation, the coastal erosion, uh, and the sea level rise exposure area on maps uh, for all the Hawaiian islands at this site. So this is an air photo of the gateway to tourism. Uh, we don't know what tourism is going to look like as we come out of our pandemic, but it was the keystone to the Hawaiian economy uh, before uh, late March of this year. And this is the 3.2 feet sea level rise exposure area. Somehow we need to figure out how to manage, adapt to, live with water coming out from storm drains, rising up from the ground uh, as new wetlands and flowing over the shorelines um, over the course of this century, the sea level rise exposure area. There's another viewer which NOAA provides called the NOAA SLR viewer. And what's unique about this is that it goes all the way up to 10 feet of sea level rise. Uh, it doesn't give you wave runup or storm drain backflow or groundwater inundation. It just gives you this passive flooding, uh, but uh, it's very useful. It basically operates by color coding uh, the topography of the land surface in the coastal zone. So what are we supposed to do about this? Well, NOAA has provided us with six scenarios for planning purposes. These first two scenarios, the low and intermediate low, are now no longer relevant because sea level rise is already accelerating to a point where they will exceed uh, these, these scenarios by the end of the century. And the next scenario above that is called the intermediate scenario. It's basically one meter by the end of the century. And so this represents a minimum planning target. And you would use this for projects or planning that can tolerate some degree of risk. And then there are higher scenarios, five feet, six and a half, and 8.2 feet uh, for projects that are increasingly sensitive to flooding. And the two highest scenarios represent some degree of ice disintegration uh, rapid uh, sea level rise related to most likely the West Antarctic ice sheet, but also potentially other parts of Antarctica and Greenland. These planning scenarios uh, are published and NOAA provides a table. Um, in this case, you can see the intermediate scenario uh, by the end of the century takes us to about one meter of sea level rise. And by mid-century, 30 years from now, we're looking at about one foot of sea level rise. These are for global mean sea level. There is a whole other process not taken into account here, 
which means that sea level at a locality, at a location, can be more or less than the global mean. And the primary process that causes this local relative sea level rise is called sea level fingerprinting. Sea level fingerprinting operates by the gravity that the ice sheets exert on the ocean surface. So the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, and in fact also the ice sheets and all the mountain systems have measurable gravity associated with them. And wherever there's water, water will immediately respond to gravity and the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets cause the North Atlantic and the Southern Ocean to actually curve up because the gravity of those ice sheets is pulling up the ocean surface. Now global warming is causing the ice sheets to melt and that leads to a local sea level fall around the ice centers because the gravity is reduced and there is a compensating sea level rise above and beyond the global mean that takes place elsewhere on the planet. Here is the sea level fingerprint for the Greenland ice sheet. And you can see that Hawaii sits in the worst case uh, zone. Here's the West Antarctic ice sheet. Again, Hawaii sits in the worst location. The East Antarctic ice sheet, note the position of Hawaii. And the median glaciers, in other words, the median uh, sea level fingerprint of the world's glaciers. And you can see Hawaii again sits in the worst case scenario. So NOAA provides these regional sea level fingerprint uh, scenarios. And once again, these two scenarios, the low and the intermediate low are void. And our intermediate scenario now, which was 3.3 feet because of sea level fingerprinting at the Honolulu tide gauge now uh, is four feet by the end of the century. In other words, the 3.2 feet that was the subject of the state sea level rise modeling, which is 98 centimeters, that's likely to occur a decade earlier on the order of 2090 or even late 2080. And I don't want to imply that this is a precise science, but this is for modeling purposes. These are benchmarks for modeling purposes. The intermediate high scenario for Honolulu takes us to over six feet. The high 8.8 .8 feet and the extreme, again, uh, the high and extreme representing potential disintegration uh, of ice streams, the extreme goes to over 10 feet. All right, so what are we supposed to do with this? We're obviously looking at a severe um, process, sea level rise. And here in the background, you can see how severe this process is. Now, beaches are considered noisy systems. That is, from one season to the next, the beach might erode, it might accrete. Sand travels along shore and back again. Sand travels offshore and back again. The waves arrive 
from different directions during different times of the year. So beaches are constantly getting wider and narrower, and we refer to this as a noisy system. And extracting the signal of sea level rise in the form of beach behavior is extremely difficult. In many cases, the signal of sea level rise is still buried in the noise of seasonal behavior. But you can look for certain signposts. You can look at 50-year and 80-year-old um, ironwood trees that are being undermined. This would be the first time they've been undermined in their, life, in their lifetime. You can look at areas that were developed many decades ago that at the time were set far back from the ocean and are now experiencing uh, damage from, from coastal erosion. These are signals to us that sea level rise, despite the noisy system, is having a real impact in shifting the shoreline landward. We can call that shoreline retreat. How do we manage this situation? In 1972, the National Coastal Zone Management Act was passed, and this established policies governing our beaches and other coastal assets, estuaries, uh, wetlands, and water cleanliness or water pollution in the coastal zone. The goal of the CZM Act in 72 was to preserve, protect, develop, and where possible to restore or enhance the resources of the nation's coastal zone. The CZM Act in 1972 led to the development of state partnerships. And I believe every coastal state is a partner with the federal program. And the state partners, um, by and large, have developed their own local laws. In Hawaii, a governing, um, a governing policy is what's known as the administrative shoreline. The administrative shoreline marks the jurisdictional boundary between county jurisdiction, where you can develop the land for private ownership on the Malka side of the administrative shoreline. You can also have federal lands and you can have state lands, but we're going to assume it's county land in our description here. And on the Mackay side, the lands are automatically zoned conservation. In other words, they're public and they are to be um, conserved and they are managed by the Department of Land and Natural Resources. The shoreline itself, the administrative shoreline, is defined as the upper reach of the wash of the waves at high tide during the time of the year when the waves are highest, but not to include storm surge from hurricanes or tsunamis. So this boundary is going to move with sea level rise. And in fact, the Attorney General two years ago issued an opinion that as the administrative shoreline migrates landward from erosion or sea level rise, it automatically converts land to conservation ownership. In other words, it's state owned. And there doesn't need to be any notice or payment given to whoever the other land, the previous landowner was um, prior to the, the upper reach of the wash of the waves migrating landward. This shoreline also marks the location from which the counties and the state 
have what's known as a setback, a construction setback or a, a zone of prohibition where you um, are not allowed to build. And the state setback uh, had a minimum of 20 feet and, and uh, was otherwise 40 feet. Uh, but recently Senate Bill 2060, just this year, and in fact, just signed into law by Governor Ige uh, two or three weeks ago, eliminated that minimum setback for the state and made it 40 feet. So the individual counties also uh, are allowed to have or given the authority to develop their own setback, provided uh, it doesn't retreat compared to uh, the state setback. And the city and county of Honolulu uh, revised ordinances, chapter 23 is the setback policy for the city. And it says right here, right up front, the purpose of the shoreline setback for the city uh, is the primary policy of the city to protect and preserve the natural shoreline, especially sandy beaches, to protect and preserve public pedestrian access laterally along the shoreline and to the sea, and to protect and preserve open space along the shoreline. And it's also the secondary policy of the city to reduce hazards to property from coastal floods. So clearly, the primary purpose of the setback is to protect beaches and to protect the public's right to move to and along the shoreline. Even the state law, Chapter 205A, which at the very beginning defines its objectives and policies, objective number nine is beach protection to protect beaches for public use and recreation. Now, as I mentioned, we have had improvements this past legislative session um, through Senate Bill 2060, which the governor signed into law. The improvements are very significant. It increases the state minimum setback from 20 to 40 feet. And it defines sea level rise as a coastal hazard for the first time. It also requires single, single family residences being built on parcels impacted by coastal hazards, including sea level rise, to require a higher level of permitting called an SMA permit. Previously, if you were to build a home on a coastal parcel, uh, you would basically go into the county and you would have a county planner check uh, several aspects, but basically stamp it. Now it requires public review um, and uh, a much higher level of scrutiny in order to build in the coastal zone. It also defines a beach for the first time, and it's a great definition. It gives several aspects of a beach, but then it also says this, that beach means sand dunes or upland beach deposits landward of the shoreline. So this means that as the administrative shoreline, the upper reach of the wash of the waves migrates landward, it's not just Makai of that that you have beach. In fact, Malka of that, you have upland beach deposits and sand dunes, whether or not they've been landscaped uh, under uh, our yards and our homes. So the definition of a beach spans county jurisdiction as well as state jurisdiction. This is a table that's available at the um, city and county of Honolulu 
Climate Change Commission that talks about how Maui has a, a, a very advanced and protective setback, which is uh, 25 feet plus a distance of 50 times the annual erosion rate of the shoreline at that parcel. It also provides for measuring the depth of the lot and at certain depths there are uh, percentages or distances where the setback uh, requires you build malka of that and the deeper the lot the greater the setback pushing you back and Kauai has uh, even even more protective um, setback policies instead of 50 years they go with 70 years 70 times the annual rate of erosion and 70 uh, is con considered the uh, average lifetime of a wood frame house and they also have this uh, lot depth calculation that can be done. So we've made some great strides. We are pushing development away from the shoreline. We have now prohibited coastal hardening. I meant to say that for uh, the, the Senate Bill 2060. It prohibits shoreline hardening on beaches, and beaches are defined very robustly. Um, However, we still have lots and lots of shoreline that is already fully developed and has seawalls on it. And we have a situation of global warming which is not looking good. Last year and going back a couple of decades, the rate of use of fossil fuels accelerated faster than the rate of use of renewable energy. In fact, last year, coal represented 36% of all power generation uh, across the world, and renewable energy only 10%. Projections by a whole range of energy economists suggest that we're going to be seeing continued CO2 emissions uh, at least until mid-century. That's this red line. It goes up to the year 2040. But if we want to uh, meet the UN targets of stopping warming at 1.5 degrees C or 2 degrees C, we need to follow this green line. So projections and actual observations of greenhouse gas emissions are not in line uh, with our goals of stopping warming uh, at less than 2 degrees Celsius. In fact, this nonpartisan congressional think tank, which was started in the 1950s, uh, comes out with an annual outlook and their outlook in 2019 said under most scenarios carbon dioxide emissions from the global energy system are on a path to far exceed international targets of the Paris Agreement. So the fact is our current pathway is taking us to someplace between three and three and a half degrees Celsius of warming uh, in the second half of the century. So the challenge to us, now that it appears that we have stopped seawall construction through revisions to Chapter 205A, and we have the nation's most protective setbacks in the county of Maui, on the island of Maui, and the county of Kauai, now that we have moved and achieved these successes, how do we take care of these homeowners, these landowners that are in doomed locations. 
how do we save our beaches and move our coastal assets? It's not just homeowners on beachfront parcels, it's also roads. This is the challenge before us now, and we have a lot of work to do. So thank you very much. I'll stop with that and stop sharing, and we can go into uh, discussion mode. Doria, it's all yours. Thank you, Chip. Thank you so much. Um, I do want to give a quick shout out to um, our beach protection coordinator, Mike Foley. I don't know if Mike, you're still here, um, but he's been doing a lot of incredible work with us. And I'd love if we just could give a one or two minute super quick overview of what we've recently been doing and then um, leave time for some audience questions. Yeah, great. Um, thank you. Thank you, Chip. Um, Dr. Fletcher, that was a great overview. Um, thank you for your, your time this evening. And thanks, Doray, for the shout out. Yeah, so my name is Mike Foley. I am the volunteer beach protection coordinator for Surfrider Oahu chapter. And the chapter has taken on a lot of coastal management issues. Um, as as Dr. Fletcher mentioned um, at the end there, right, when he was getting to the really hard question of, of what we do um, to, to, uh, to either protect or relocate or enhance our coastal um, infrastructure. You know, we've, we've as a chapter have started to chime in and, um, and I think our role here is to help with bringing science and policy um, to the discussion from the community perspective. And so we specifically have taken on a couple of um, high profile projects that um, we've, we've kind of made our voices heard, I, I would say. And, um, and we're looking now at how we can help to kind of inform some of the policy discussions around these really hard questions. So whatever we can do to build bridges uh, between the managers at the local level and then maybe at the state and the, and the federal level, um, we're really trying to, uh, to, to see what we can do to facilitate those discussions. So it takes, it takes a, um, a village. And um, anyway, thanks, thanks for, for chiming in everyone. Thanks for your, um, any questions and I think we'll open it up now. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, last little note from the Surfrider side is that we do rely quite heavily on the community being our watchdogs, telling us what's going on, if there's maybe a, a potential illegal seawall, a beach access being blocked. Um, so please never hesitate to reach out to us because it's, it's how we find out about most issues. Um, and with the recent Waimanalo seawall and the Obama Nesbitt property, um, we were the only testifiers that came from that science and policy perspective. Um, so, you know, our role is becoming, you know, it's being revealed how important it is for Surfrider and any other organizations who want to step up to, to speak their voice on these issues. Because um, as of right now, there are no formal organizations that are really prioritizing beach protection um, from the nonprofit side. So first question comes from Arlene. What about the hotels in Waikiki and how will their retreat be handled? If you can take that on flip or chip. Sorry, start with the easy question, huh? We don't know. We just do not know. I can tell you that there are um, 
sort of slivers of action that individual hotels are taking. Um, the Queen Lilia Kalani Trust sold its lands a few years ago in Waikiki, and they told people it was because of sea level rise. So they're they're getting they got out. Um, one of the hotels, not one of the beachfront hotels, but but one that's just uh, on the other side of is that Kalakaua, is renovating and it's planning on raising its ground floor eight feet, and it's doing this for sea level rise. Um, while maybe individual properties and hotels need to take on uh, the adaptation challenge themselves, the architecture and uh, the renovation, we still need to handle the roads and sidewalks. And so those are public assets. And underneath roads, you have our sewage lines and our fresh water lines. Um, so there are lots of uh, um, very important assets that go with roads. And traditionally in government, whether it doesn't matter what level of government, you have departments that are relatively siloed. Uh, so you have the, you know, the transportation folks and the freshwater folks and the sewage folks. And they rarely get an opportunity to work together, but now they have to work together. And so one of the things that the resiliency office is doing for the the city is creating resiliency teams, bringing together these uh, key folks in these departments, getting them used to the idea of working with each other and solving problems together. Um, do we raise roads? Are we going to end up with a system of dikes, raised roads that will block polluted groundwater, which is going to break the land surface as sea level rises and prevent the circulation of that polluted groundwater. It needs to, it needs to have access to the ocean. So simply raising roads on fill, uh, we need to do something far more sophisticated than that. And do we invest uh, public assets in communities that potentially are doomed. How do we make that decision? So the challenge before us is enormous. And we so far are really just scraping the surface. Okay. Thank you, Chip. Yeah, I think we're finding more and more that everyone's kind of at a standstill, homeowners, landowners, hotel owners advocates and government officials i think we all want the same thing we want to protect our beaches and we don't want to be taken over by the shoreline um but i think it's just a challenge of finding the common ground and the money to to retreat and so in a way that benefits everyone but it's hard um the next question is please explain the danger of seawall so just for the everyday person you know how would you do, how would you explain why they are so bad sure um it's pretty simple if you're a beach, your essence, your very self-definition is that you live at the edge of the ocean. And if the ocean is rising, you have one choice to stay alive. You need to migrate landward. Sea level rise, in fact, does not need to be damaging to beaches. 20,000 years ago, at the culmination of the last ice age, sea level was 400 feet lower. And as the ice melted, sea level rose around the world, 
and beaches just naturally rolled with the rising ocean level and with the migrating shoreline. And where beaches came in contact with rock, they would go extinct in that location and they would move around to an adjoining abatement. The sand would find its location to stay at the migrating shoreline. So when we build a seawall, we stop the process of beaches attempting to migrate landward, which is all they're trying to do, if I want to personify them, is stay alive and not drown with sea level rise. There's a second effect that happens. When you build a wall, there's an effect called flanking, which is you accelerate typically on the majority of shorelines, especially those that have that are dominated by longshore transport sand that moves along the shoreline. Uh, flanking is where you build a wall and you cause accelerated erosion on your neighbor's property. Then your neighbor builds a wall and then causes accelerated erosion on that neighbor's property. And wall by wall, property by property, we've seen this at Lanikai, we've seen it at Halama Street on Maui, we've seen it in dozens of neighborhoods, this sort of proliferation of, of sea walls uh, and eventually you lose an entire segment of beach. Thanks, Chip. Um, Scott, your question about Kauai, um, yeah, just email me and Mike and we can definitely talk about the specifics of that. Um, last question, and I'm just gonna tag on because we're almost at that seven o'clock, so hopefully, Chip, you can answer both at the same time in the same answer. Yeah, one is, um, can you please comment on the Eva Beach seawall with the U.S. Marine Corps? And then I would love if you end with just some things people can take away, things that they can do every day, um, you know, behaviorally or systemically to create some positive change around these issues. Sure. Um, so the Eva Beach seawall is to protect a shooting range, a mound of earth, uh, which is probably the equivalent of a super fun site because there's so much lead that has been shot into that mound, um, I believe it's since World War II, maybe it's older. And coastal erosion is going to expose that lead and we don't want that to happen. And so that's why the proposal is to build a seawall. The problem is that's going to cause flanking. It's going to cause the beach in front of uh, that location to disappear. And there are going to be a number of effects. Um, although it's going to cost or probably cost a lot more, in my opinion, uh, I think that they should just excavate that site and move the fill, move the polluted earth someplace. I don't know where. I, I, I know that doing that is not trivial, but um, it seems to me that building a seawall uh, is, is not the best solution for the environment provided that the uh, lead polluted soil can be located in a place where it can be isolated uh, from the surrounding environment. And as far as uh, what to do, so the developing world is uh, developing a taste for beef. And McDonald's and Burger King and all the rest of the fast food joints are moving into Mogadishu and uh, Costa Rica, and they're moving into the developing world as fast as they can. India, of course, uh, has now reached 1 billion people or will soon. China, of course. And as these uh, developing nations demand more and more beef, we are deforesting large parts of the planet in order to grow 
hybridized corn and soy to feed the beef. And one of the things that happens when you deforest is you expose deep natural habitats in which viruses and bacteria have been living in equilibrium with the ecosystem, but now they come in contact with humans. And these are called zoonotic diseases, and COVID-19 is a zoonotic disease. It comes from animals. And 73% of the uh, recent, that is over the last 30 or 40 years, infectious diseases are zoonotic. So if we eat less meat, if the world can get away from eating beef, that's probably, in fact, it's said over and over again, the most powerful thing uh, that any individual can do. I'm not asking you to become vegetarian, just asking to eat less beef. And this includes chicken and pork because the factory farming of chicken and pork, pork is another place where bacteria and viruses blossom, right? They move through hundreds of animals or thousands of birds. And when the dead birds from the viruses or bacteria uh, are, occur, they are pulled out and live ones are put in. So the virus has an unending number of hosts. And just through uh, natural evolution, um, it, it can develop increased viril, um, uh, virulence. And you get things like uh, bird flu that has a 60% uh, fatality rate when a human catches it from a bird. Thank goodness that um, avian flu has not yet become transferable from human to human. You still can only catch it uh, from a bird, but imagine these enormous uh, fatality rates um, in the form of a pandemic. And it all stems from our food and the way we raise it, either through deforestation or through this intense factory farming. So what's the most important thing you can do? is eat less meat of all types. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chip. It's been really refreshing to hear a climate leader um, speak that as the true, as a true top climate solution, just for individuals to be able to do every day and feel that level of alignment and empowerment. So um, really appreciate that. I'm sure this won't be the last time you talk to our surfrider community. Um, I wanna thank you for sharing your expertise, all that amazing data and information. And thank everyone who joined us in the evening time. Um, we'll be having more virtual webinars. Feel free to reach out to us if you have ideas for topics, things to cover. Um, we're here as best as we can be virtually on Zoom and Facebook Live. And yeah, we hope you all have a great night. And this will be posted on Facebook and YouTube following this. So feel free to reference at any time. Thank you. Good night. Thanks, everybody.